First Peter chapter 1, amen. Uh, I had a teenager this morning as I went up to uh, teach our Sunday school lesson. We do a little joking around. I asked some Disney questions to start off our Sunday school hour, gave some suckers out. Brother Kevin came forward and made our uh, uh, morning announcements and let the kids know everything. Then he asked some Bible trivia. And then I came up and I said, now take your Bibles to First Peter. I was saying, uh, I think we were in Exodus chapter 3 this morning. I said, take your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. And one of the girls said, I love how you get so serious when you go to teach. <laughs> I said, I'm serious all the time. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have a silly side. So First uh, Peter chapter 1 tonight probably won't be super serious, probably won't be very long, but the last time I promised you that, we were here till about 8.15, so I'm just going to stop making that promise, and then you can just deal with the repercussions later. First Peter chapter 1. Now, meditation is not a bad thing. Eastern culture and Eastern practices and religions have almost made it to where that word is taboo to us Westerners, and it almost seems like that's a, a, a thing that we ought not do, and we have to have a yoga mat and some yoga pants. And I'll tell you what, I don't want to see Brother John Ringgold in yoga pants, just me. Miss Carrie told me the same thing earlier. But they've almost made us feel like meditation is a bad thing, but I believe meditating on good things, especially meditating on Scripture, is a great thing. And earlier this week, I was riding back from lunch with my mom, and I simply looked over to her and I said, Man, I've, I've had a verse that I've been meditating on all week. And I told her it would probably be the verse that I would eventually preach on, uh, but for some reason the Lord just gave this verse to me, made it stick in my heart, I just thought about it and thought about it. The more I thought about it, it grew on me. And so that's what we're going to be speaking on tonight. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 will be the entirety of what we will read. So please, since we have such a short passage of Scripture, really focus in on what the Bible has tonight. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. The Bible says... For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot, without blemish. Let's read it one more time, verse number 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Heavenly Father, tonight we come asking for your provision Lord, for your divine providence to be in this room. Lord, we're asking that as we meet in just this short time, you as in times in scriptures and in times before as we have met as a congregation, you would send your Holy Spirit to meet with each and every person who's willing to open their life and really examine what the Word of God has to say in regards to their life. Father, I pray for every person in here that has other priorities or other things on their mind that you would get them to so quickly focus on the Word of God that it would uh, uh, stranglehold their attention and they would not be able to focus on other things. Lord, I pray today that you would guide me in such a way that you would keep me from saying things I ought not to say and pinpoint me on the things that I should say. And Lord, as we would leave this building, we would leave here with a new respect love and appreciation for the blood of Christ 
and what it means to us as believers. I pray that you would do this in your son's precious and powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Now, beauty has been said to be in the eye of the beholder. And looking at some of you men, I can say that your wives are very generous beholders. The beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And it's funny, as you look around culture, and really in different cultures, what some people consider beauty is not at all what I consider beauty. For instance, in some parts of the world, in Burma, for instance, a long neck is desirous. And so what the women do is they wear brass rings around their neck, and I'm sure many of us have seen pictures of this, and they stretch their necks out to be twice as long as what they would normally be, and an 8-inch neck is not at all uncommon in their culture, and they consider that beautiful. Now, I don't consider that beautiful. I consider it kind of giraffish. I don't consider it beautiful, but they do. I remember reading that in Chinese tradition, a woman, who, a woman who had small feet was considered a beautiful thing. And so what these women would do so they could meet the requirements of this beauty, they would cram their feet from the time that they were little girls into shoes that would not allow their feet to grow. And in fact, they wanted small feet so bad to be desired of men, they would literally break their feet to fit into the shoes so that as they healed, they would heal in a very small fashion. Now, I don't consider small feet pretty. In fact, I don't consider feet pretty at all. One time I went up to North Carolina. It was one of the very first times I'd ever gone up there and visited. In fact, I think it was the very first time. I went to go to my wife's family's house, and they were having a little family get-together. And it, it, basically they talk about Panthers football and how they're going to win the Super Bowl every year. Uh, it's essentially what they talk about. And I remember I wore sandals over there one day, and the aunt looked over at my feet and said, Amy, he's got good feet. And I did not know if that was a compliment. I didn't know if it was an insult. But I knew I felt violated. And apparently she loves feet. She has a foot fetish, as some would call it. She loves looking at them. And I just think feet, no matter what they're on, are kind of ugly and stinky and they sweat, and they get nasty, and then green stuff grows on? Is that just mine? Is that? I do not think feet are desirous, but in, in China, and especially ancient China, that was considered the beauty of the day. I recently read a story of a pastor who went over to uh, visit a missionary in Western Africa. In fact, it was in Timbuktu. That was the country, I guess, that he went over to visit this missionary with. And in this country, it was considered desirous for the women to be, uh, I want to be careful how I say this, heavy boned? Is that no large boned? Uh, basically, it was considered desirous for them to be large. And, uh, and, and the missionary that went over there to minister to these people, he had a rather petite wife. And they came to him and they said, you being married to her is shameful to you. And he didn't fully understand what they meant. And he said, the village told them, if she was so thin, that obviously meant that he was not providing for her in the way that he ought to. 
And so they took that as almost a, a, a bad mark on him. And then they introduced him to a proverb of the land. And the proverb read like this. If your wife is on a camel and the camel cannot stand, your wife is truly beautiful. I feel bad for the camels in that land. Is that not somewhat strange? I mean, that's completely different than our culture. Uh, and I don't believe that the uh, thin-boned uh, idea of a beautiful woman over here is really that much better than that. They're just right and left. I mean, uh, getting off on my sermon, but women, don't try to appease yourself to look like the women in the magazines. They're not happy. And husband, don't ask your wife to be that lady because you're not going to be happy when she gets there. Be content with such things as you have. The Bible says, but I'm getting off. It has nothing to do with the blood, that's for sure. <laughs> but it's just so funny how in different cultures, in different societies, one thing can be, con be considered desirable or desirous, and then another thing in another culture can be considered absolute contrary to what they consider beautiful. In Christianity, there's a similar thing taking place, but it's with one of the most precious things in all the Bible, and that is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I, I believe that day on Calvary, it was a very sad day. I believe it was a very gruesome and gory picture. But I believe as we look back through history and we understand it through the eye of God and through the eye of Scripture, we look at the cross as a sad day, but yea, a beautiful day for what it means for our redemption. You see, the blood of Jesus Christ is not at all ugly. It is beautiful. And it means everything to us because if the blood had not been applied to our hearts, we would not have eternal salvation. The blood is beautiful. But in modern day Christianity, there are literally versions of the Bible that are being published who are at their very best trying to completely remove the word blood. And there are versions of the Bible where in the King James Version, it uses the term blood 101 times, I believe. There are versions of the Bible who use it less than 18. And it's the same word in both languages at every time it's translated. So don't tell me they just understood some new revelation. Some Dead Sea Scrolls revealed some truth that they had not previously known. No, what it is is we are taking out the gory parts of salvation. And we're saying, oh, this may not be so attractive or appealing to someone new to Christianity. If, if they don't really understand what the blood means and, and what the blood does for us, they, they might be scared off. So what we'll do is we'll just call that the work of Christ or the death of Christ. But I tell you, it was not the death of Christ that freed us. It was the application of the blood of Christ on the mercy seat of God. And if it had not been for that actual application, you would not have your salvation. You see, the cross was simply a means to get the blood from Christ to the mercy seat of God. Oh, while other modern-day theologians may be calling the blood uh, kind of ugly or distasteful, my friend, I want to submit to you this evening, the blood of Christ is beautiful. And I want to tell you why tonight. I want you to notice with me, first of all, the reason the blood is beautiful is because it is a purging blood. Look in verse number 18. The Bible says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed. Redeemed. What a word. 
I love singing songs, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You see, redemption is always tied to the blood of the Lamb. Redemption was absolutely necessary. And in fact, if you don't know this, the word redemption here literally means to ransom. They are literally synonyms. It means to release on receipt of ransom. So in other words, as the Bible says we are redeemed, it is saying that we were ransomed by God and He redeemed that ransom. I'm so thankful that He cared enough about me to look upon me to endure the pains and the shames of the cross, to spill His blood for me, to ransom me. Now I've seen ransoms go down in movies. I've seen them in TV shows. I I like some of the murder mystery, crime scene, detective type shows. My wife and I watch them. So we basically stick with Scooby-Doo as pretty much the entirety of our television library watching. But we we enjoy some of these murder mysteries. And sometimes what will happen is the, the thief or the kidnapper will ask for a ransom for the person. But what do they always say? Uh, I've heard this in movies. They say, we do not negotiate with with terrorists. And so they're saying that we're not going to negotiate with you. We're going to find you, and and we're not going to give you money. I've heard that. I've also heard other times when they they, they try setting up what they call a sting. You know where they, like, this is a surprise. I bet he's not going to be expecting you if you... If he gives you the location to meet you at, but what they'll do is the person will meet them with the with the kidnapped uh, victim, and, and they'll meet at a certain location, like a public area, a park or whatever. And, and the police forces will set up a sniper over here, and, and this police officer here undercover, and, 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 and you have all that go down. And really, I didn't know that much about ransoms, but did you know that ransoms not only have happened in real life, but they have happened for large sums of money. It's a real thing. In fact, I got to doing some research, and there is one man who became rich off of this idea of ransoming people. You know his nickname? His nickname's a lot easier to pronounce than his real name. His nickname was The Big Spender. Now, that's a good nickname, amen. I think that's pretty strong. If I'm going to have a good nickname, it better be a good one. And they gave him this title, The Big Spender. He became famous because, not because of his run-of-the-mill robbery and, 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 and thievery that he would do. He became famous because he came up with the idea of stealing or kidnapping the sons of property tycoons and then ransoming them back to them. In fact, out of the top eight ransoms that are ever paid, that have ever been paid, he holds number two and number three on the list. It's an amazing story. You can do some research, and if you want his name, it is Cheung Se Kyung. <laughs> hey, good luck. I, you can Google it if you want. Good luck spelling it, though. Cheung Se, it's a T there. I'm trying to say because Brian and Jamie are going to get mad at me if I don't, you know, Asian language. I don't know, but that was his name, and this happened in Asia. And essentially what he did is he would go kidnap these men, and he kidnapped the son of the most wealthy man in China with two AK-47s, seven pistols, and four bulletproof vests. He inducted a, uh, abducted a man by the name of Victor Lee. Now, Victor Lee was not necessarily rich, but he was the son of Lee Kashin. 
Now, I'm not making that up. The wealthiest man's name in China is Ka-ching. I'm not making that up. You thought it came from the cash register sound. No, it doesn't. His name is literally Kashin, and he is, uh, in 2014, Bloomberg's billionaire index rated him as the richest person in Asia. His net worth is $31.9 billion. And this was his son that got kidnapped. The man abducted, the big spender abducted his son and asked for a ransom. And now this was in 1996. Asked for a ransom of $134 million to receive his son back. That would be equivalent today of $197 million. So almost $200 million. And within the day, Kashin had paid for his son. Could you imagine, now I just know me, if if somebody abducted me and ransomed me and called my dad up and said, if you'll give me $100, you can have him. My dad would literally be going through his mind, how many coon dogs can I buy for $100? I mean, he's gotten himself into some hairy situations before. I'm sure he can get himself out of this one. Uh, you know, a hundred thousand, you know, a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars. I'm sure that my dad would, oh yeah, sure. But if, if somebody called my dad up and said, we want two hundred million dollars for your son, you know what he would say? You can have him. He said, because you're going to spend that much this year on him. <laughs> Could you imagine? There's no way my father could have come up with $200 million. And in fact, you know what my father biblically did for me? My father's name was Adam. One day in the Garden of Eden, my my father, my dad, wrote a ransom note for me that I or him or anybody else, any one of my brothers, were going to be unable to pay. And it doesn't matter how much my dad loves me. My dad doesn't have access to $200 million. He could, he's powerless when it comes to that. Did you know I'm powerless when it comes to the debt that I owed God? Did you know that Adam, as much as he got me in the hole, could never get me out of it? I was powerless before God. So when we read this word redeemed, don't think of it lightly. Literally what is being said is, our father Adam ransomed us, held us captive by his own mistake put us in shackles that we could not undo. And the Bible says that Jesus paid or satisfied the ransom that we owed. Friend, it's a purging blood. It takes away what I absolutely deserved. And we blame a lot on Adam, but in reality, if we want to be very honest with one another, I deserved it not because of what he did, I deserved it because of what I've done. It was not just the root of my sin that caused problems. It was the very fruit that I produced that caused me problems. And I was the one that should have died on that cross. And I was the one that should have been put in that tomb. But my friend, if I'd have been put in that tomb, it wouldn't have been borrowed. It would have never been vacated. You see, I was powerless to pay the sin debt that I owed. But Jesus ransomed us from the debt that we owed. And I'm so thankful that he did because I could not have. It's a purging blood. It takes away what we deserved. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, 
For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. We are in a hole. We could not sacrifice goats. We could not sacrifice bulls. For it was impossible for them to take our sins away. But they would simply delay them a year. And delay them a year. And push them off a year. Any of us are procrastinators in the room tonight? Oh, I'm a procrastinator, I tell you that. And what I'll do is I'll put things off and I'll put things off and I'll put things off. And at best, the most spotless, the most blemishless, the most perfect, most beautiful, most white, most amazing lamb, the most he could do for me was procrastinate. Push it back. Just simply push my debt back. But when Jesus came, he didn't just push it back. He removed it. And in fact, he removed it and placed it upon him. And he bore the pain. And he bore the suffering. And he bore the cross that I should have had. Jesus' blood was a purging blood in that it took away my sins and placed them on Jesus Christ. The Bible says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 says, Even as the Son came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give His life a what? A ransom for many. Oh, I'm so thankful. If I read this word, and aren't we good at reading our Bible and just reading over words we become accustomed to? Don't read over words like redemption and redeemed and and don't allow them to affect, affect your heart. There is a lot of theology wrapped up into this one little word, redeemed. It's a purging blood. I want you to notice, secondly, it is a priceless blood. What makes this blood so beautiful is its value. You know, as I got to thinking about uh, uh, the word priceless, I tried thinking of things that were priceless. In fact, a few years ago, I believe there was a campaign, an advertisement campaign that was ran by MasterCard that would give you two scenarios that cost you money, two to three, and then it would give you the end result that would be priceless. In other words, it was something like airfare to see your son, $250. Baggage fee, $7,364. Seat fee, drink fee. Looking at the stewardess fee, pressing your button fee, air conditioning fee, all those fees that go along with flying. And we give you a total, but at the end of it, it would say, the smile on your child's face, priceless. But I got to looking at what some people consider priceless. You know what I realized? There's nothing on this earth of material possession that is truly priceless. Nothing. Some of the most valuable things that we consider as extremely valuable and priceless, did you know they've all had a price tag attached to them at one time? One of the most invaluable things that uh, we uh, know of and we look to is called the Ferberg eggs. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It could be the Ferberg egg, but that sounds weird. So Ferberg, Ferberge, I don't know. Somebody's trying to correct me. Thank you. I'll let you preach next week, whoever that was. But I had a picture to show you tonight, but I was uh, praying, and that's why I didn't get up there. We'll say that. But uh, uh, it's these eggs, and they're beautiful. They're gold, and they're wrapped in diamonds, and they have some of those most beautiful artwork on them. Well, 
The third imperial egg in 2011 sold at auction for $33 million. Now, that better made a good scrambled egg. I'm talking about it shouldn't even needed salt and pepper. It should have just been great tasting. Not $33 million. Now, that's a lot of money, but can I ask you something? Is that priceless? No, if there was a price attached to it, it's not priceless. Another thing that some people consider priceless is a Stradivarius violin. And I've even used sermon illustrations of this before. It was a man, a very famous name, by, uh, a man by the name of Antonio Stradivari. Around 1860, he crafted what was the very best violin that had ever been made. What was so unique about them is he had made many improvements on the violin, but also the beauty with which he made the violins and the very pure sound that they produced. Now, some violinists claim that these have a better, more pure sound, even years and years later. But blind tests, where they put a blindfold on them and they let some of the most professional violinists in all the world fill and play these violins, they can't tell the difference between one that was made in the 1970s and these. A lot of times what happens is value is more in your mind than it is truly in reality. And this one is one of those cases. And uh, the highest price ever paid for one of these violins, an actual, authentic violin made in uh, 1680, was $1.6 million for one violin. $1.6 million. Now that's a lot of money. JT's got me hooked up. That's my boy. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. He deserves a raise. He just won't get one. Uh, but these violins are amazing. Their craftsmanship, their sound, they, they look awesome, they sound great. But if they sell for $1.6 million, and that's the highest one ever, can I ask you, is that priceless? No, because there's a price attached to it. Another thing that some people claim is, is uh, priceless is the Mona Lisa. Did you know that before 1900, the Mona Lisa painting was not even considered one of uh, da Vinci's most famous paintings? In 1911, what happened is someone stole the Mona Lisa. And, and that's where it got its value. Was not, and we know it because they say because it's realism and because the mystery, you don't know if she's uh, uh, wanting to go to lunch because she's smiling. You don't know if she's angry at someone. You don't know if she's happy. You don't, and, and we've seen the picture, but... Most people don't even think that it would have become famous if it had not have been for someone who snuck in one night, stole that specific painting because that's the one he had access to. And then two years later, it was refound, and, and that's where it got its value. But even at that, in 1962, the Louvre, that's the before picture of the Mona Lisa. There's an after one where she loses weight. In fact, that's when she went to Timbukta. Uh, but basically, the, uh, this, this art gallery that was uh, 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 displaying the Mona Lisa purchased a $100 million insurance policy in 1962. Now, in 1962, that was a lot of money, but that would be equivalent today of $787 million. Now, that's a lot of change for a canvas, isn't it? Yeah. But can I ask you, is it priceless? No. Time and time again, you see this repeated. Some of the most... Uh, mean bosses, they are some of the most beautiful works of art, but at the end of the day, one just sold in 2012 for $1.3 million. So if there's a price tag attached to it, 
They are not priceless, would you agree with me? Now look with me in the Bible in verse 18, what the Bible says about the blood of Christ. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. What's funny is, depending on your age and stage in life, you value money differently. Just this week, my mom was giving Benjamin money. And he had a $1 bill in this hand, and he had coins in this hand, and Ben valued the coins more than he valued the dollar. And I'm like, you're just like your mother. <laughs> you don't know what's right, what spends better. And, and, and he really doesn't understand money. And I remember when I, was in 12, uh, when I was 12 years old and I was working, I remember how big a $100 bill was to me. Man, I had to work a lot of days in a row to get a $100 bill, and, and that, was, that was big money. To some of you, a $100 bill, you wouldn't blow your nose with it. And to that, I'd say, I'll pick up your tissues any day you want me to. You see, it's funny how we view money different, but at the end of the day, the man in China who's worth $31.9 billion, Mr. Help me with it, Kashin, Mr. Kashin, it, to him, $1,000 may be nothing. To me, $1,000 is a large chunk of change. But it's so funny how people have different values on money. But there's one thing that the value never changes on, and that's the blood of Christ. It doesn't matter if you think it's worth a million dollars or a billion dollars. There's no amount of money in this world. There's no amount of gold in this world. There's no amount of diamonds in this world. There's nothing in this world that could have bought the blood of Christ. There's nothing that could have replaced the blood of Christ. I don't care how good it was. I don't care what your viewpoint is. I don't care what you think about it. There's nothing as invaluable as the precious blood of Christ. It's absolutely priceless. To some of us, it's a shame we do not value the blood of Christ like we ought to. The suffering that he had to endure to spill that blood, to extract that blood. The fact that he was willing to lay down his life to spill that blood for us. As a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth, the Bible says. He laid his hand down to be nailed to the cross. He said, Peter, put up your sword. The hour is come for me to do my Father's will. Friends, the blood of Christ was spilt voluntarily for the sins of the world. What a value we should place on it. We just simply don't. That's a reason the blood is so beautiful. is because it's absolutely priceless. I want you to notice thirdly, one of the reasons that the blood is so beautiful is because it is a pure blood. A pure blood. Look at verse number 18. I'm sorry, verse number 19. The Bible says, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Without blemish and without spot. You see, the Bible goes through immense measures to make sure the integrity of Jesus' sinless nature is maintained. And that's a very wordy way of saying Jesus didn't sin and the Bible says so. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, But he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. The Bible says in 1 Peter 22, uh, 2 verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Jesus walked this earth and was perfect every day he walked. He never made a mistake. I want you to take your Bible to one of my favorite passages of Scripture. We're actually very close to it. The book of the Revelation, chapter number 5. You see, there was a reason why Jesus' blood was pure. Uh, I, I mean, I could go into the fact that his mother was, uh, uh, he was born uh, by a virgin, and he did not have, have Adam's sin nature passed to him. And that's the reason the root of sin did not pass through. Uh, he did not have any fruit of sin because even people that watched him daily never saw him mess up. But I want to show you the reason why it was so important for him to be sinless and perfect. Revelation chapter 5. The Bible says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within, and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Now, if you don't know what book this is talking about, this is the book of life. Verse number three. And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. Now, this is a problem because what's in that book is tells whether I'm saved or not. And if that book cannot be viewed, we don't ever find out whether I'm saved. And this obviously affects the man in our passage here because look in verse number four. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, I like this, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the four elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came, and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are uh, the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and every tongue and people and nation. Friend, it was quite important that Jesus lived a sinless life. Because as they searched through heaven to find one worthy to open this book, there was no one. The Bible says there was no one in heaven. There was no one on the earth. And there was no one in hell. No one that had ever lived throughout the course of time in history was able and worthy to open the book. And one of the elders looks over and says, Hey, wait for the good part. Don't cry because, watch this. And the angel that stood there and held that book and said, Who is worthy? Everyone looked up and beheld the sinless Son of God 
the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world, John chapter 1 says. Friend, you might be asking yourself why I'm tr- I barely could read the passage, why tears were in my eyes. You might be asking my, yourself why I'm getting so emotional. Because if Jesus had not died, no one opens the book. In fact, if Jesus had not died, there is no book. And as they searched through heaven and said, who is worthy to open the book? I couldn't because I've sinned. Adam couldn't because he sinned. Moses couldn't because he slew an Egyptian man in anger. Abraham couldn't because he sinned with Hagar. Uh, All the Old Testament saints, all the New Testament saints, Paul, uh, Paul couldn't because he had slain men and he consented unto Stephen's death. There was not a man throughout the course of history who could, was worthy to open that book, but because Jesus was perfect, because Jesus was spotless, because we are not redeemed with corruptible things such as gold and such as silver. We are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as without spot and without blemish. Friend, it's very important to me that Jesus lived a sinless life. Oh, it matters, friend. It matters a lot that it was a pure blood. Oh, my friend, I just tell you, if you can't leave tonight charged up because Jesus' blood is perfect, then it was pure and it was exactly what God needed to redeem the sins of the world. You literally are not saved. And you are dead to spiritual things. The blood is pure. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friend, it was a pure blood. And I'm so thankful it was. That's one of the reasons it's so beautiful is because it was pure. It was spotless. It was without blemish. I want you to notice finally the next reason why the blood is beautiful is verse 19 because it's a precious blood. It's precious. Turn your Bible back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Notice in verse 19, and this is the word that stuck out with me all week long. I simply could not get rid of it. It has torn me up, upside down. It's stuck with me every day. Verse 19, the Bible says, But with the precious blood of Christ. What a word. It's precious. Why was it so precious? Well, I've got two reasons for you. Because of the limited supply. Look, God can recreate anything He wants God can speak the words and mountains just shoot up from the ground. How many of you were here for the earthquake the other day? Y'all felt it. I felt it. I wasn't going to be the first uh, moron to say anything and be crazy, but I felt it. My mother-in-law called me from North Carolina, and she says, So I hear you had an earthquake. And I said, I knew it! You felt it in North Carolina? And she said, No, I saw it on Facebook. I told her she needed to get off Facebook and get her face in the book. Amen? And uh, uh, I, I sat there and I felt that ground shake. And, and uh, I looked out my window and a huge gust of wind had just happened. And I'm seeing all my trees blow back and forth. And I said, 
getting a little drafty in here. Because I sat in my recliner and it started shaking and I said, man, did someone leave a window open that was not open 10 minutes ago? And it blew me away. And I was just so amazed at the power of that thing. I think it happened in Venus. Is that right? That's what I heard. I don't really watch the news, but I think it happened in Venus. They said it was a 4.0. I don't really know, but it wasn't like I was looking for a table. I was really confused at what was going on. I was, I was just taken back by it. I don't even know where I'm going with this, to be honest with you. I know it was cool to be in an earthquake. It was unique, to say the least. Oh, now I know where I'm going with it. Jesus, uh, or God could have... I've been to the oceans and seen the immense power of the waves. I've seen them capsized in some of the largest boats. And, and Jesus had the ability to step out on the bow of a boat and said, Hey. And these waves that were scaring professional sailors to death just stopped. God can make goat after goat. God can make sheep after sheep. God can make anything he wants. But there was one thing there was a limited supply on. You see, God could not create more blood of Christ. It was limited. In fact, I said this earlier this week. They had one shot to get this right. As Jesus hung on that cross, and as that soldier thrust that spear into his side, and blood mingled with water ran out, you know what that is symbolic of? That all the blood had been spilt somewhere between the uh, striping block and the cross of Calvary. And all that blood was spilt, but you know what? There was no second chance on that deal. The only amount of blood that could have been spilt and applied to the mercy seat was the amount that was in Christ's body. They can't go to Carter Blood Care Center and get some blood from Brother John because we know how much sin's in that stuff. There's a limited supply of it. And did you know when something has a limited supply, the value is driven up? When something is in short supply, the value goes up exponentially. In fact, on our way to California, I showed the teenagers this just the other day. There's a stretch where there's not a gas station for 70 miles. 70 miles. And you get 20 miles into your journey, and a sign pops up, and it says, we are the last gas station for 55 miles. Well, you see, if you don't get gas there, you're in trouble. And we pulled in there, well, not with the teenagers, but we pulled in there with the, in the past. And gas that was high at the time, about $3, they were charging seven and a half for. You know why? Because they could. There's this principle that I like to uh, say sometimes. It's all about supply and demand. There was a lot of demand on the blood of Christ. But there was only a limited supply. But this is the reason it was so special, because it was the Lord's supply. Look, I've been wrong on this in my mind, and I hope I can explain this in a way that will make sense to everyone. But Jesus was just not a third of God, you understand. When God realized that there would have to be a 
a, a, a satisfactory payment for sin, he did not say, oh, I'll send Jesus. You know what he said? I'll go to the earth. And I will die for the sins of the world. The creator God said, I will submit myself under the hand of men. Not Jesus, the Father in heaven said, I will go for them. Jesus was just the Father in the flesh. Sometimes we think of him as an entirely different entity of the Trinity. But friend, he is just as much God the Father as he was God the Son. It's so precious because it was just not someone else's blood. It was the only blood that would satisfy God's holy demands. And it was his own. It was his own. Now, when my wife and I first had Caitlin, we had an agreement. Well, I don't know if she really agreed to it, but I told her this was going to happen. And so far, it's not working out in my favor, I'll say that. Um, I told her that I can handle the blood. I can handle the, the breaking of bones. Like the medical emergencies, I got. You know why? Because I've been armed deep in the cavity of an animal. I've seen every organ there is to see. I, I, I mean, I've seen bones. I've heard them. Brother Roger. I, so I'm pretty accustomed to all that. And so I said, I'll handle any blood, any, uh, I was going to say guts, but if we're to the point of guts, we're in a bigger problem than I can handle, I assure you. But I told her I would handle the bones and the blood if she would handle the recycling and the regurgitation. Man, when vomit comes out, I want to head for the hills. And today my daughter put some perfume in the air that I promise you was showing her sinful nature. It was rank. And then we got over to the house and Craig goes, Benjamin, did you, did you toot? Not many preachers will use that word from... And I said, I'm sure he did, because it ain't my daughter. But as far as I can remember, I have not had to deal with any blood. Now, I've had, you know, when she lets down on her job, I've had to clean a dirty diaper or two. But this week, my daughter was running out of the, uh, uh, like the reception area here in the office. She spends every day up here at the church, and she hates us for it, I'm sure. She was so excited to leave, she was running and jumping and prancing all at the same time going, bah, bah, bah. And literally, Jamie, uh, the secretary, uh, Jamie Olson, was looking at her laughing because it was so funny how excited she was. And Caitlin goes, 
boom, and face plants. Now, this was not the first time she's face planted. I usually laugh. But this time, when she came up, she had busted her lip. I've seen quarts and quarts and gallons of blood. I've seen my own blood. I've seen my wife's blood. I've seen a lot of blood of animals, and none of it's affected me. You know what affected me? My daughter's blood. As stupid as this may sound, I saw her lip bleeding, and I thought, emergency room. I said, it looks deep. It's probably going to require stitches and an epitoma. I don't even know what that is. Probably an EKG. I, I, I hope, hope she's going to be okay. I'm telling you, my daughter put her head on my shoulder. And the agreement that we made was under the understanding that the blood would be like everyone else's blood that I had seen, all the other blood that I had seen. But I come to realize the other day, Her blood is not like everyone's blood. It was different. When Jesus died on the cross, the father watched his son spill his blood by the gallons for you. And as much as watching Caitlin's blood ooze from her lip tore me up, I can only imagine the agony that the Father in heaven was in as Jesus was bleeding profusely. There's beauty in it. Hidden behind the agony and the excruciating pain that our Savior was going through, you know it was mingled in there? love so amazing and so divine. It was God's precious, pure, priceless blood being shed for me. And behind all the pain and the agony on Calvary that day, there's a lot of beauty. Around all the cultures of the world, there may be people that disagree on what a woman looks like and what's beautiful, but I promise you this, there's no disagreement around the world of what the most beautiful thing ever shed for me was, and that's the blood of Christ.